Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark's gospel is pithy. In case you don't know that word, I will furnish a textbook definition for that. And this is from the American Heritage Dictionary of the English Language, 5th edition. Pithy, precisely meaningful, forceful, and brief. Mark's gospel is the shortest of all the gospels. In the text which we read today, which you heard today, this consists of six verses. Six verses in which Mark describes Jesus' baptism, his temptation in the wilderness, his heralding of the gospel, and it even throws in a little bit about John the Baptist being arrested. All in six verses. All of it embedded in six verses. But it's six verses that's got a lot of force. That's why I say it's pithy. Now, on the, of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are what is called the synoptic Gospels. I'm sorry, this is probably review for some of you. Um, but I, I want to get some context here. There are these synoptic Gospels, and they're called synoptic because they align so closely together. The three of the Gospels that are synop- called synoptic Gospels, and that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, There is a lot of hypothesizing that goes on among scholars about the order in which the Gospels were written, and then they hypothesize that, you know, for example, Mark wrote his Gospel, and then Matthew picked up some of Mark's, you know, writing when he wrote his Gospel, for example. Or some would say, no, no, Mark wrote his Gospel after. That's why Mark's account is so brief, because he takes for granted that you already know about the temptation in more detail from Matthew. Uh, Luke himself references other accounts that have been written. So it's clear that Luke knew that there were other accounts written. Uh, And of course, did uh, Matthew just all of a sudden write down his gospel and then people read it and were like, wow, we've never heard this thing before. No, of course, he he preached his gospel and then then wrote it down. So a lot of the words that that you would have in a gospel would be familiar to people over this, this period of time where the gospels were coming together. But nevertheless, there are some people that, um, you know, scholarly people that, like to develop all these different literary theories about how things came together. There's, there's one, and I was taught this uh, by people in, in, when I was in college, uh, that, that there was uh, this extra source called Q, where you know Mark and Matthew and Luke all drew off of that one source. Um, usually when people talk about Q, they are people that are denying the inerrancy. Not always, not always, but usually that's... That's where they're headed. They're trying to find some sort of rationalistic explanation for it. Uh, But what they're denying is that the scripture is God-breathed, that Mark wrote his gospel, that Matthew wrote his gospel as they were carried by the Spirit. All right, now let me get back to Mark's gospel. In case you don't know this, the church has always regarded Mark's gospel as uh, the eyewitness account of Simon Peter. So Mark was a close associate with Simon Peter, and, um, and it was observed by the early church fathers that, and commented that Mark recorded the gospel that Peter had relayed to him. All right. But because of the nature, and this is why I really wanted to talk about this, because we have a very brief six-verse lesson this morning, which covers all of this ground. But because of the nature of the synoptic gospels, there is a tendency to read an account from Mark and then say, well, let me compare that to the account from Luke. 
Or let me compare that to the account from Matthew. Now, it's good, generally, because Scripture interprets Scripture. So we should compare Scripture with itself. But the downside, and this is the thing we have to be careful of, is that you might read Mark and sort of miss the way Mark is trying to communicate his gospel because you're reading into it what Luke had to say or what Matthew had to say. Well, they're all describing and coming at things from a different angle, and there is a sense in which we need to read Mark and let Mark's gospel speak for itself. Is he missing details in his gospel in these six verses? Is he missing some details? That's where I'm going to say no. He's not missing details. He's giving you the details he wants you to have. Okay, That's all of that. And by the way, we're going to be going through Mark all year because that's series B of the three-year lectionary focuses on the gospel of Mark. So I wanted to get this out there, and I won't do this very often. I'll just say it this one time so you've all heard it. You know uh, that this is, this is something that's going on that we need to keep in mind. All right. <clears throat> So I go back to this statement I made that Mark is pithy in the way he communicates the gospel. Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, firstly, I have to make an aside because we live in a world where some people insist on immersion baptism. That where it says Jesus came up out of the water, that's not a reference to immersion baptism. It just means he came up out of the river. He was standing in the river, he was sprinkled with water, as was the practice at that time, and then he came up out of the river. doesn't mean he emerged from an immersion. Nothing wrong with immersion. If you want to immerse, go for it. Uh, We used to immerse the kids in the pool. We'd blow on their face, and when you do that, they would like recoil and hold their breath and you could dunk them under the water. You know, they learned that. So anyway, that explains some things about them. Anyway. All right, but that's just an aside. Okay, that is just an aside. This is what's more important. Jesus saw the heavens opened and the spirit descended upon him. Now, although this account is brief, it powerfully embodies within it a rich history of the prophetic message. And and I'll give you two verses from Isaiah that that the person hearing this could not help but but think of. Okay, One is Isaiah 61.1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. The other is Isaiah 42.1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Mark is pithy because in his brief statement, he draws an allusion to these prophetic messages. The message that Isaiah the prophet preached. He connects the promises of God rendered by Isaiah to the baptism of Jesus. And in this, we clearly see that Jesus is the servant of the Lord, the one on whom his spirit has been placed. The one in whom God the Father is well pleased, 
Those are the words that Mark uses, and those draw back to Isaiah and the words that Isaiah used to describe the servant who would come, the Messiah. Then comes to mind, after you make that connection, then comes to mind the rest of what Isaiah said. To bring good news to the poor. To bring forth justice to the nations. In other words, that thing that Isaiah said, that has come to pass here in Jesus Christ. The thing that Isaiah said would come, bringing good news to the poor, that also you can trust and believe is coming in Jesus. Now Mark goes on, he says, the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. Now, I also sometimes joke that, God, that Mark is the gospel of immediately because he uses that word immediately so many times. The word that's interesting here, though, is ekbale, which, is, uh, which has been translated drove, drove him into the wilderness. But it's the same word that we use to say cast out demons, like to drive a demon out of a person. Is that same word to draw out. You hear that ek, that's the, the out word. It, it's the same word that the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. In this case, the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. And he was there for 40 days. 40 days. Does that capture any Old Testament imagery? Does that remind you of anything? Being in the wilderness for 40 days? Yes, of course. Old Testament Israel. When they were brought up out of the land of Egypt, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Just so, Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. Now they also, those of the, uh, of the Israelites who came up out of Egypt, wandered for 40 years and they were tempted. But they failed. You will recall their catalog of failures. They did not succeed in their temptations. Why? Well, because they did not put their trust on God. They did not believe the word that God had said to them. They put their trust elsewhere. They grumbled against God. God, surely you are going to let us down, is what they said. Now, though Jesus was literally in the wilderness, the wilderness is also not just a literal place, but it also draws us and paints a picture of separation from God. The wilderness is the place where you are removed from God. And Jesus was there, and yet, while there, he was not alone. He was in the wilderness with wild animals, but he was not, but he was protected and preserved. We hear that angels were ministering to him there. This draws a picture of Jesus trusting in God, even when he's in the wilderness, even in the place where he would be apart from God, yet he trusts in the provision of his heavenly Father, and he is not let down. Even to the grave, you can trust that God is with you. That's what is is coming through in this, is that no matter where you find yourself, whatever suffering or uh, wilderness that you find yourself dwelling in, God is not apart from you. God is there with you. He's there with you in your suffering. And we pray every day, uh, Luther's Luther's prayer, his morning prayer, send your holy angel to be with me. Yeah, we pray that. God, please, send your angel to be with me, that the devil, that the adversary may have no power over me. But we mean it. (laughs) And God means it when he says, I will be with you. This also paints a picture looking forward 
not just to the resurrection, where Jesus will overcome death and the grave, which is an assurance that we also will overcome death and the grave, but it also points forward to the coming kingdom in which the lion and the lamb will lay down together. Now what comes next? After the arrest of John the baptizer, Jesus comes into Galilee. Now this is interesting because Galilee is the region in which Herod rules. Herod, the one who has arrested John the baptizer. Jesus comes into this territory that he rules to preach what? Repent and believe. Does that sound familiar? The same thing that John the baptizer was preaching? Repent and believe the gospel. But Jesus says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The Spirit of God has come upon Jesus and God the Father is well pleased in his beloved Son. Driven by the Spirit, Jesus went into the wilderness and was tempted for 40 days. He did not succumb to temptation. Jesus is the new Israel. He trusted fully in God's care. This vital connection to the fulfillment of the prophets is given by Mark as a prologue to the rest of his gospel. This is given so that all who hear the words of the gospel will know that the time long awaited has arrived. That time is fulfilled, as Jesus said. The kingdom of God is at hand. The message is loud and clear. Now is the time to repent and believe the gospel. This is good news for all people. God's promises are always fulfilled. In Christ, God's promise of redemption has come. As we heard, Abraham told his son, Isaac, poor Isaac, God, I mean, Dad, Where's the offering? And Abraham said, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. Now, Abraham, we know from from the, the scripture that Abraham believed that even should he carry through and slaughter Isaac, that God could raise him from the dead. And thus he was able to hear with faith That's what obey the word of God means. It means hear it with faith. Hear it with believing. He was able to do that. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Well, this is what exactly what has come to pass. God has provided and that lamb is Jesus Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. The peace of God which passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.